how to overcome the odds, how to separate yourself from dream killers, how he no longer has Parkinson's disease, and the epic story of how he got to the MLB at age 35, all coming right up. This is episode number 189, with the real-life inspiration for Disney's blockbuster movie, The Rookie, the one and only Jim Morris. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I'm here because you want to become the best version of yourself, but there are so many things that you need to do to get there. Because it's overwhelmingly complicated and it's easy to lose focus and it's easy to lose a sense of direction, so many people end up being less than who they could be. That's why I create videos, podcasts, and fitness programs to keep you on track to your best you. Today, I bring you my first ever repeat guest on the show, Jim Morris. Jim's the inspiration behind The Rookie in which he was portrayed by Dennis Quaid. Along with being a former MLB pitcher, Jim is a speaker and author of the brand new amazing book, Dream Makers. Make sure you go to dreammakersbook.com and grab your copy today. I've read a lot of books and this one floored me. It literally made me put down the books a number of times because some of the stories. The honesty he has about the ups and down moments of his life is something that you do not want to miss out on. Be sure to take a screenshot of this episode when you're listening and post it to your Instagram stories and tag me at carrier underscore best you and tag Jim at Jim the Rookie Morris and let us know you're listening. Also, if you're not getting my weekly Monday morning newsletter, you're missing out. You need to get the Monday Motivation Trio, the 111 newsletter, which is one quote, one video, one workout to really set you up for success, to have an awesome week. I'll send you a motivational quote. I'll talk about it in a motivational video and I'll set you up with a badass workout to kick off your week with a bang. Make sure you go to nickcarrier.com slash 111-newsletter. Again, to get it every Monday morning, go to nickcarrier.com slash 111-newsletter. Without further ado, here's to getting closer and closer to your best you with the one and only, the legend, Jim Morris. All right. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I am super fired up today to have actually my first ever repeat guest on the podcast, the one and only Jim Morris. So the way I want to start today is just saying thanks so much for hopping back on and spending the time with me today, Jim. Absolutely, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. Well, if you guys haven't listened to the first episode I did with Jim, you need to make sure that you go back and listen to it. But I know we're going to have even more amazing stuff today. Jim is the real life inspiration for Disney's blockbuster movie, The Rookie, a former MLB pitcher, and he's the author of the new book, Dream Makers, that I just finished reading. I just told him before we hopped on that I just read it in three days, probably the quickest I've ever read a book before. And the amount of stories that were in there that made me have a jaw drop and was just like, oh my gosh, was just probably more than any book I've ever read. So you guys need to make sure that you go and read it. So with that being said, the way I want to start today, Jim, is just what has you most excited now that your book is finally coming out? The fact that we finally got it done. It took us 20 years for an ending. And then what an ending it is. You've read the book and you know, and I don't want to give it away too much, but man, when we got the ending we did, it was um, life-changing, life-altering, and makes you know that anything is possible. And so I've really enjoyed writing it. People are excited about it. My friends are just like, beside themselves because they can't come near me and they want to hug me and shake my hand and everything else. <laughs> We're quarantined, man. It's COVID 2020. Yeah. And so 
it's just been a blast being able to talk to everybody and reconnect with Dennis Quaid and the fact that we're still friends over time and that I, uh, his podcast with me is coming out pretty soon in the next couple of weeks. And it was funny because when he was doing the podcast with me and he had read everything and we talked about it, he goes, man, this, this is actually a better story. <laughs> and I thought that's a compliment from someone who's made a whole lot of movies. Yeah. Are, were you interviewed on his, the Denison's podcast? Yes, sir. That's awesome. I, uh, I actually just interviewed his business partner, Jared Goodstat with them two are business partners with audio up. And so I talked to him a lot about Dennis Quaid too. And it was bringing me flashbacks to our interview and reading the book. It was funny because I loved the book, loved the book, loved the book. And then the last time, the last line gave me absolute chills because I titled the first episode that we did together, remember who you are, because that was one of the biggest messages that you brought out. And that's how you, that was the exact line that finished this book. So it just gave me chills. So with that, with uh, staying on the book for a second, what, what was kind of the toughest part about physically taking the time and putting it all together and writing it? Uh, looking at the mistakes I've made and the things I've put <laughs> my wife and my kids through and chronic illness, you know, Parkinson's, it's just, it's not pleasant. And a lot of people suffer every day from that and other chronic illnesses. And so I just want to give people hope. And you, the hardest thing about writing this book was being honest and just laying it out there and going, I've been through this. You can get through this too. And you've read it. You know, that the rehab chapter was the hardest one for me. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure that's definitely a part of your story that I wasn't familiar with. And I want to acknowledge you right off the bat for how honest you were. I'm sure that was the hardest part because you do reveal a lot of things in that that a lot of people wouldn't have the strength and the courage to be able to tell other people about. And your courage to be able to do that is going to, one, help so many other people do that. And two, allow other people who are in similar situations know how to kind of navigate themselves out of that. So that's just a one of the huge things I want to make sure I acknowledge you for. I want to start off talking about your relationship with your dad to give everybody a little frame of reference because that's kind of where a lot of things start. Your relationship with him was anything but good. Um, so just in a couple of minutes, give everybody a little frame of reference in terms of your relationship with your father growing up. All right. Growing up with my dad, it was, it was awesome. I was born with asthma. I had pneumonia 24 hours later. I was never supposed to play sports on any grass field whatsoever. And he was in the Navy. And so we traveled constantly and he would travel with me, a kid who had severe asthma and almost died from it several times. He would drive cross country, smoking cigarettes with the windows up. And that is just the beginning. And he had great things to say to me as a kid, children are to be seen and not heard. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. Why do you even try? usually with a fist and the expletive here and there. Well, a lot of expletives here and there. And I think the most devastating thing he ever said to me, and it was kind of something I knew even as a kid, was he was holding my little brother one day and my mom had just walked into the kitchen. He looked at me as he's holding my little brother. And he goes, this is the one we wanted. We never wanted you. And that's him in a nutshell, physical, verbal abuse. Um, I tell people everywhere, the bruises go away. It's the words that stick with you. So yeah, I think one of the pieces of physical abuse that stands out for me that I'm recalling from memory from the book is 
one time him taking a cue stick from a pool table and like hitting you in the stomach. And then the story that you brought up in terms of him telling you that the, your brother is the one that they actually wanted. I remember you telling me that during the first podcast interview we did. And that was one of the things that just blew me away. And I was like, I can't, couldn't even imagine having my father tell me that and what that would, what that would do to me. Is there anything you feel like still now today, like up to this point, something that he said that you haven't really been able to shake in? I've gotten past most of that, Nick. And it's a funny thing with, I call them my girls. My girls are a group of ladies at my church and they want me to call them girls because they're like 50 to 90. And so they don't want to be called women. They want to be called girls. And so they pray for me a lot and they prayed a lot of stuff and they've helped me get through things. And they said, you've got to forgive him for everything that happened. And you go step by step, everything he said, everything you can remember, and even things you don't, you forgive him for. And then the key part was, and you may have to do this constantly because it's going to come back and those memories are going to come back and you're going to be going through something that resembles what you went through as a kid in real life now. And you're going to have to forgive him again. And I've that's what I do. I forgive. And mm -hmm. I didn't forgive him so we could have a great relationship and we could be buddies because that never happened. I mean, the last time he and I talked was at my grandmother's funeral. I went up to him to put my hand on him in church and say, I'm how sorry I am. And don't ever effing talk to me again. And that was the last time we talked. And you're supposed to have a father who builds you up and gives you boundaries naturally, not cement walls that you can't get out of a box. They're supposed to help you grow up and learn what life is about, not tear you down and tell you how worthless you are. And he was just a very unhappy person. And I'm sure there were mental issues to go along with that, but there are a lot of people out there who have parent issues, either a mom or a dad. And you can use me as an example and go, wow, if he got through all that stuff, I can get through this. Yeah, seriously, because we only scratched the surface on a lot of those examples of your father and, and other people. So like you said, your book is titled Dream Makers, and you talk a lot about in your book how you've had dream killers in your life, obviously one of them being your dad, but countless other dream killers as well, the athletic director at the high school that you coached at, and so many more. And everybody has dream killers in their life, probably not as hopefully as, as bad as you've experienced, but somebody has a parent, a coach, a teacher, a boss, a coworker who puts them down. What are the different things that people can do when they're around those dream killers, if they're around them, to kind of lessen the blow to their internal selves, if you will? I think if you distance yourself enough, you've got to get distance between you and the people who want to tear you down. And, you know, dream killers are people who either haven't succeeded at something they wanted or they want to tear you down so they feel better about where they are. And I tell people everywhere and I tell kids everywhere because they can even be friends from school and they go, don't do your homework. You know, don't worry about that. Let's go do this. Let's play a video game. Stop. Those people need to go away. You get away from them. Sometimes you can't get away from them at work. But maybe work's telling you you need a different dream and a different direction to go because those people will suck the life out of you. And we need to find better people to be around. It's when you surround yourself with the good people, that's when you feel your worth. Yeah. So let's take 
the example of the athletic director at the high school that you coach baseball at because he was just basically terrible to you. And ever since since you started there, he was kind of trying to find a way to get you out, and he finally did. But you had to be around him for at least a couple of years. And other people are probably in the same situation in which they work with somebody or they have to be around somebody to a certain extent. So what are the, is there, are there a certain like – do you still try to distance yourself as much as you can during that? Or are there certain kinds of conversations that you try to have with them to try to turn them? Or what does that look like? When there are different philosophies involved, there's nothing you can do to please a dream killer. Mm. What you do is you do what they want when they're in charge. You do exactly what they want to the best of your ability, 100%, 100% of the time. And then like for me, the kids saved me. And so I would put up with him so I could get to my high school kids and work with them. And if you're at work or anywhere else, you just do what you have to do to get by, but you do it as well as you possibly can. And I tell people this all the time, the dream you're living right now may not be the one you end up loving the most. And he told me I would never be successful. And I've had a movie made about me. Dennis Quaid played me. This is the second book I've written. And you know what? I am successful. And sometimes those people just want to tear you down. And so you got to take it for what it's worth. You forgive them for being the people they are. And you do what you're supposed to do. And you keep your eyes focused. And you just stay lasered on to whatever it is you need to do to get you through. And, you know, hopefully you find a better job or a a bigger dream and you right. chase it. Right. No, I, li- I like what you just said. And the line from your book of a lot of times the dream that you end up chasing is the one is not the one that you're currently chasing. And I think that's a huge thing. But at the same time, you have to have a dream that you're currently chasing. You have to have something that you're currently chasing, because even if it's that's not the destination you land on, you're going to end up somewhere much better having had some sort of dream in the first place. Absolutely. I, I look at me. This quarantine deal has separated us from everybody. And so we've worked out constantly for the last three months and we've done virtual meetings and something that my wife and I had talked about before, we need to get into virtual meetings and see what that's all about. And then the quarantine comes and then you're forced into that dream and you're like, Hey, I can do this. That's pretty cool. But where I was going with the whole working out thing was You have Parkinson's. You're going to get worse. Three years ago, my mother bought me a cane. I was dragging my leg around, couldn't even walk. And now today, 2020, I'm running. And you don't give up. You just go. And you don't stop moving. Because the minute you stop moving, somebody else is going to pass you by. They're going to steal that dream that you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, so to kind of stick on the working out and the Parkinson's thing, by far the story in the book that stopped me from further reading because I was just floored by it was when you were, I think you were working out in your garage or like, so we'll I have to preface it with the, and the, that night you kind of heard the noises and the next day you were working out in the garage, the feathers and all that kind of thing. If you could, could you maybe in a few minutes talk about that story? Because I know that that was something that was, I was just like, I, you know, it's one of those stories that because it's anybody else who's hearing it, there's things like, okay, you're kind of hokey. This is there's no way this is true sort of a thing. So I I want you to go ahead and rehash a little bit of that, if you will. 
I'm in the middle of a Parkinson's deal and getting worse. And every time I go to my neurologist, oh, it's Parkinson's. Oh, it's Parkinson's. This is the, it's just Parkinson's. You're just going to go downhill. And it's just negative, negative, negative. And so I keep, try to keep working out. I'm in my garage. This is on day three. The first night at 3 a.m., I hear a scratching noise. And I'm like, what is that? I get up. My dog's asleep. My dog doesn't hear it. And the second time, the second night, 3 a.m., happens again. This time, my dog freaks out. The hair on his neck stands up. And I live in Texas, so what do you do? You grab your gun. You walk around to see what's making the noise. And I walk around the whole house. I walk outside. I don't see anything. And I'm like, this is, I'm not hearing things. My dog woke up. The third day, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm lifting weights. In between sets, I'm sitting in my lawn chair. And I'm listening to music and Jeremy Camp. And I, number one, Nick, I don't push my faith on anybody. And that's not what this story is about. And so I don't want people to go, oh, yeah, whatever. This is what I believe in. And so I'm sitting there in between sets. And I just start hearing this voice going, you're healed. And then it turns into a lot of voices. You're healed, you're healed, you're healed. And it just gets louder and it crescendos. And I'm like, all right, now my friends are messing with me. And I'm going to go look around the garage. I've got the garage doors open. I go look around the corner. I walk around the house. Nobody's here. I sit back down and it's one voice and it goes, you are healed. And I've got this deep brain stimulator in for Parkinson's and I've had it turned up and Slowly, I'd been turning it down just to see what would happen and like 0.2 at a time. And it was on 4.5 to start. And now I'm on 0.8. And I go into the house and I'm like, well, if I'm healed, then I don't need this. And I turn it off. And this is the electricity that goes to your brain that helps you function because you don't have dopamine, which was why I was diagnosed in the first place. So I turn it completely off. And my wife wakes up from her nap and she comes out and she goes, what are you doing? I said, watch this. And I turned a circle in the kitchen for the first time in years. Couldn't do it because of my balance problems. And I'm standing, she goes, what have you done? I said, it's off. Why did you do that? I said, because I'm healed. The part I left out was after that last voice when you were healed, I walk outside of my garage again because I still think I'm being messed with and there are feathers everywhere. I go in, turn it off. She wakes up. I tell her. We walk back. I say, you got to see this, man. There are feathers everywhere. Go back out and there is only one feather. And I'm like, what is that about? And so over the next few weeks, we make another appointment. I get stronger. I start walking more, go back to the neurologist. She doesn't believe it. She has me do all these Parkinson's tests, the balance and everything. And then she sends me for a DAT scan, which monitors the dopamine in your brain. I go back and I do that. And you know what? Your dopamine is fine. You don't have Parkinson's. And my little neurologist is floored. And she goes, that, I've been doing this for 15 years. That doesn't happen. And so I go back to my neurosurgeon and I tell him. And he's like, he's a man of faith too. And he's like, yeah, he can do anything, man. He goes, 
let's do some tests. And he tested me like, you show no signs of anything. <laughs> and so this December, the book comes out in June 23rd. This December, I'm having the thing taken out of my brain and the battery pack taken out of my chest because it's been off. It will be two years in August that it's been off. Oh my gosh. Congratulations. That's awesome. That, I mean, that story, I like the feathers thing, I think is probably what stopped me from like, I read it and I was just like, whoa, like I had to pause because it was so, I was so taken aback. Unbelievable story. Gosh almighty. I am a stubborn, stubborn man. And I, I believe that God can do anything. But why, why would he do that for me? I'm just this one person in nowhere, Texas, who's going through this illness and all these surgeries. And God likes to show off. And he shows up when you least expect it. And I'm telling you right now, the lives that have been changed because of that story has, has been incredible. And so it had to go in the book. I know some people are going to call me uh, nuts and whatever. They can call me whatever they want to. I'm healthy. I don't have Parkinson's. And my neurosurgeon said it doesn't happen. My neurologist said it has never happened. And so here I am. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that story, the two stories for me that are inexplicable are obviously that one. And then how you go from, you know, your entire childhood throwing 88 miles per hour and all of a sudden you're hitting the gun 98, 99, 100. So I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention a little bit of the, uh, the tryouts and the baseball stuff. So I want you to kind of everybody's well most everybody i hope has probably seen the movie the rookie so the they've seen the tryout scene because it's probably one of the best one of the best scenes of the entire movie so i kind of just want you to break down the going to that tryouts that day like kind of how you didn't tell Lori to start and then to the end of the day when you go home and you get the voice messages So I take my kids to this tryout in my hometown of Brownwood at Howard Payne University. By this time, my kids have won a district championship. Uh, we've been knocked out of the playoffs. School's over. Baseball's over. I've got a job in Fort Worth. And I go to this tryout because I promised, if you win, I'll find a tryout. But the whole time I'm going, you're old. This is embarrassing. This is humiliating. What are you doing? You're crazy. Because at the beginning of the season, when we made the bet, the kids couldn't hit me. But by the end of the season, I can't get these kids out. And so now I'm going to go to a major league tryout. I can't get 16 and 17-year-old kids out. This is going to be embarrassing. I get there. My kids are 8, 4, and 1. I'm watching all these kids, 18 to 24, get out of their cars, tall, thin, athletic-looking, brand-new bodies, brand-new gear. I look down at the gut hanging over the elastic band of my softball pants, which is not the picture painted in the movie. Thank you, Dennis. And I'm like, what have I done? And I've taught my kids about their great-grandparents forever. And one of those deals was when you promise something, you live up to it because that's who you are and that's your word. And I said it, but I thought I thought in my head, I said, what have I done? My eight-year-old son looks up and he goes, you made a promise. It's time to get out. And I'm like, well, you're going to walk home is what you're going to do. <laughs> and so I get my kids out and we go up to the sign-up tables, Tampa Bay Double Rays, the Rays now. And Doug Gassaway's a scout. He's about 70. And 
all these kids are signed up and this kid in front of me signs up. He walks off. Gasway looks at me. He goes, how many kids you bring to try out? <laughs> and I looked down at my three and I went, I brought three. And he goes, no, two try out. I said, I brought me. I said, I made a promise. I'm living up to it. And I'm throwing either. You're going to let me throw or somebody else is, but they did something nobody thought they could do. And I'm here to do this. I know I can't do it. It's going to, you're going to get a great laugh out of it, but let me do it. And I get done and he looks up at me, he's 70, I'm 35. He goes, son, why didn't you just shave your head like every other coach? I'm like, <laughs> where were you three months ago, man? And he goes, I'm gonna let you throw, but you're gonna throw last. These guys are here because they wanna be ball players. They have to throw from the outfield, they have to hit, they have to be time to 60, you wanna run with them? I said, I don't run. <laughs> I said, I'll help you time them, which he didn't find humorous, I don't know why. And I wait four and a half hours. My kids and I have a picnic, play games. I change diapers with my one-year-old. And then he eventually calls me out the mound. He hands me a baseball. He goes, anytime you're ready. I wind up. I throw the first pitch. The young guy catches me, gives me a sign for a fastball. It's a perfect pitch. I'm like, that is a good pitch. I look over the catcher's head behind the screen, his gas away, shaking his radar gun. I'm like, you do not even throw hard enough to register. That is embarrassing. And one radar gun turned into two, two turned into three. And then eventually all the young guys threw like 20 pitches. When I get up to 60, I think they're making fun of the fat old guy and that's me. And finally he looks at this kid and he goes, hey, grab a bat, get in the box. He goes, you want me to get in there against that? And it kind of hit me, I'm like, oh, maybe it's not too bad. I finally get done. My one-year-old's crying. It's hot. I get him in the car, turn the air on. Gasway meets me at the car. He goes, I remember you. 15 years ago, a Ranger Junior College, you were a football star. Everybody wanted to make a picture out of it. I said, yes, sir. He goes, well, I don't know you've done your time off because you threw like 88 back then. But you were throwing. The first pitch you threw without warming up was 94. Everything after that went up to 98. And I'm stunned. And the first thing when somebody, if man, woman, child, it doesn't matter. If somebody goes, you're throwing 98 miles an hour, there is a happy dance going on in your head. Yeah. But as an educator, the first thing I thought was, you have been throwing 98 at high school kids. You're getting sued <laughs> is what you're getting. And he goes, look, you're old. And I said, well, thank you. I think he even threw Methuselah in there on me. And I'm like, man, that's not funny. And he goes, I don't know what to say. You're left-handed. You're old. You throw 98. Your ball moves like crazy. He goes, I got to call it in. And they're going to think I'm crazy, but don't be surprised if you get a phone call. An hour and 10 minutes later, and when the kids and I get home, it's not one phone call. It's 12. And they want me to come try out again. And that story in itself with my ex-wife is hilarious because my four-year-old, who is my oldest daughter, has a hold of my leg. And my ex-wife looks at me and she goes, so where have we been? And then my four-year-old looks up and goes, we're not supposed to tell you. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> and she goes, what have you been doing? I said, I went to a tryout. I made a promise. She said, well, what are you going to do now? I said, that is a long, dead dream, man. At 28, I had a surgery in which the doctor said, you'll never, ever pitch again. 85% of the muscle out of my shoulder gone. Can't do it impossible she said you better listen to the phone calls i listened come back and try out in two days 
I went back and this is the funny story here. When the movie came out, John Lee Hancock, the director and I are speaking to everybody at Disney in their film studio. And he gets to this story, he goes, now, if you people want to know what's not true, this part is not true. And I went, no. I said, it was raining so bad, they had to hand me a brand new baseball every pitch. And sliding up to my knee in mud with lightning, with metal spikes on, I'm throwing 98 every pitch. In conditions I wouldn't even let my high school kids come out in. And now I've got my kids who are eight, four, and one, half my high school team, half a Howard Payne's team, and we're all out there in the thunderstorm in Texas, and I'm throwing 98. They offered me a contract. They said, we want you to play for us. And it was a minor league contract, and I signed it because I made a promise. And this is the deal where I talk about you can talk the talk all you want to, but unless you're willing to walk the walk, you can't back that up. And so when I told my high school kids about this, they're like, Coach, you told us. If we ever had our dream in front of us, you chase it no matter what. Hmm. Signed it. It's a minor league contract. Took a pay cut from teaching to play minor league baseball. Sent me to rehab camp. Guys show up every day from the front office to watch me throw. I think I'm there to pitch. I think they thought I was there to train for a marathon race. Because it was three weeks of the best diet I never want to be on again. I lost 30 pounds in three weeks. Yeah. They sent me to meet the double A team on the road. Two nights there. The first night I come in with a guy on first. And this is funny. I teach baseball for a living. I come in with a guy on first. And the first thing I do before I ever throw a pitch in professional baseball, I balk. Oh, my gosh. No way. I did not know that. <laughs> I, I shake my head and I giggle. On, I'm like, your kids would be all over you right now. And so the guy's on second. I pick him off. I get another guy out on the ground ball. I strike a guy out, 91, 92. Innings over. They're like, hey, he throws pretty good for an old guy. The second night, I throw two innings, strike out five guys, throw 98 and 99. The next day, I'm in AAA. Two months there. So three months to the tryout. Three months later, six months, September 18th, 1999, because of a group of high school kids in West Texas who nobody believed in. And when I pushed them, they pushed back. I make my debut in my home state in my favorite ballpark against a team that I love. And everybody is there to watch it. Johnny Oates, the opposing manager, God rest his soul, lets 150 people in the gate that day that had ties to me. My kids, kids I'd coached against, coaches had driven nine hours in the school bus to bring their kids to the game. People who went to college with me showed up. People who said they went to high school with me showed up. I don't remember them. But it was, I walk into a clubhouse where there is Wade Boggs, who had just gotten his 3,000th hit a week or two before, automatic Hall of Famer, walks up. He's heard about the crazy science teacher for three months. He hugs me. He goes, that is the best story I've ever heard. And I'm looking at him, and I'm a fan. Yeah. And I'm a coach, and I'm like, you're Wade Boggs. And he giggles at me, walks off, Roberto Hernandez, Fred McGiff, Jose Canseco. Now, this is my team. And so I go out that first night, 
strike out Royce Clayton, all-star. And the rest is Disney history. Yeah. Unbelievable story. It all, it all just honestly just sounds too good to be true. It's so cool. And it's, it's so cool how, especially a lot of the early on when you talked about the tryouts, how accurate the movie is at depicting a lot of those things, which is really cool. So of with your stint in the MLB, like you said, you were around some of those super successful guys, Wade Boggs, Fred McGriff, Jose Canseco, all those guys. What was maybe a biggest thing that you learned from those guys about how to be consistently successful? I think the first thing, Doug Jones pitched for Detroit, and we're in Detroit playing, and Roberto Hernandez is my best friend in the big leagues. And we're talking because our bullpens are next to each other in Detroit, Comerica Park. And Doug Jones calls me over and he goes, quit worrying about throwing your slider. You got here throwing gas, man. Throw gas. And the other thing he told me, and Roberto backed it up, he goes, you're a reliever. He goes, some nights you're not going to have it. He goes, you're going to go out and you're going to get lit up or you're going to walk people. He goes. But tomorrow, you may come in and strike everybody out. you got to have a short memory mm-hmm. in baseball. No matter how good or how bad you do, it's got to go away because the next day you're going to be up again. And I think that was the best thing for me. And it goes through life because it may not go the way we want it to. And there may be problems. There will be problems. There will be obstacles. But the next day we start over. And if you keep moving, you're one step closer to being where it is you want to be. And you can make mistakes. Mistakes are okay because that means you're trying. Yeah. How can we, because I think, I do think that's one of the biggest like skills to be able to develop, to have a short memory, to put away the mistake that we made yesterday or last week and be able to move on from it. What are some ways that people can, people who are listening can do on a, on a daily basis, help themselves have a short memory? Is it being, is it like shifting your focus from something else that allows you to distract you from the memory or what can help you have a short memory? I think having a short memory for me and what I put the context I put it into is we are not who we were yesterday and we will not be who we are today, tomorrow. And we've got to be able to move on and keep moving on because we're going to change who we are. Seasons are going to change and the obstacles are going to change. What matters is you make a plan, you develop the plan, you have the heart and you don't give up. So who we were doesn't matter. Who we are now matters because we don't know who we'll be tomorrow, but who we are tomorrow is not who we are today. I think that is huge. Yeah. I like that. So one of the, biggest things in or especially in the kind of the latter half of the book is to me was your relationship with your current wife Shauna because she's been sticking with you through all of uh, the the thick and thin all of the ups and downs and stuff like that what do you think is maybe the biggest lesson that you have learned from her don't give up she's always been by my side and she counted pictures on her phone the other day while we're sitting around and she has 58 pictures for me going into surgery in 20 years. And she has not left my side and she is my best friend. And 
quarantine doesn't matter to us because we have our best friends beside each other and we do things together. I think the first time I married somebody I thought needed to be fixed and she married somebody she thought needed to be fixed and everybody on both sides of our family were telling us not to marry each other and we were young and stubborn and we did it anyway. And while we have great kids out of it, the relationship was never there. Now I have a relationship and I have her trust and she trusts me. And there is a loyalty there that goes beyond anything earthly. And our faith carries us through. And so to have someone like that who doesn't let me give up, who is by my side consistently. And last year you and I did an interview, right? I was in the middle of a year where I had 10 abdominal surgeries and mm -hmm. I kept having hernias and everything from the gastroparesis deal I had. And then I had my stomach cut out because my stomach didn't work anymore. Three years later, I started getting all these internal hernias and I hurt and they're like, but your intestines don't feel pain. <laughs> then it's not my intestines, man. They would go in. They're like, we don't know how you're alive. Jeez. And God has showed up every single time. I say showed up. God has been there consistently all the time. Mm -hmm. So is Shauna. Yeah. I like that. I think, I mean, she doesn't allow you to give up. And I mean, she wouldn't, she would never give up on you with all the ups and downs. I mean, to me, one of the, most inspiring things that I got out of the book and a lot because it, it was one of the, it was later on was your kind of a little bit battle with the alcohol addiction and how her and your kids reacted and responded through that. And were so strong. Obviously there was, I obviously don't know the extent of everything, but I think that part to me was showed her strength and not giving up on you and allowing you not to give up on yourself. Absolutely. Let's just go out there and say it. I don't remember the week of Christmas in 2016. I'd been through so many surgeries. I'd been on opiates constantly, not abusing them, but taking them like the doctor said. But when you're in pain and those aren't working, what do you do? Well, I'm not a doctor, but I think, hey, if I have a little alcohol, maybe that'll help the pills work better. And the little alcohol turns into a lot of alcohol. And so the week of Christmas in 2016, I have not a recollection. And I wake up and I'm on a plane to Fort Worth and then to Florida and I'm going to rehab. And it was there that for the first time, I can't remember when, and for the first time in my life, I got to focus on me and I got to reset myself and and reconnect with who I am and who I want to be. And it was a Christian rehab center. I was there for 30 days. I call it the last resort of the last resort. And if you want to get sober real quick and you're over 50 or any, any age, when they tell you to take your clothes off and you do naked jumping jacks to see if they find any drugs on you, trust me, you sober quickly. And so while I'm there, the first week I'm mad. And our counselor, our pastor, who was a, 
obviously Christian, calls me into his office, loves baseball, been to every major league baseball field, has mementos from everywhere in his office. And he pulls me in, he sits me down, he goes, why are you here? He goes, I love your story. I love the movie. It's awesome. But how did you get here? And I said, I lost my faith. He said, why? I said, I've known my whole life that I need to have Jesus as my co-pilot. And he stopped. He goes, whoa. If you have Jesus in your vehicle, why are you not letting him have control and drive? And something in me just clicked. And I was like, oh, maybe that's what I should do. And from that point on, I started helping other patients and talking to them and hearing their stories. And trust me, and you know this, everybody has a story. Mm-hmm. And it's just how you tell it. It's going to make a difference with people. So I go and I talk to other people there who are like me. And then I start talking to the staff. I start helping the staff. They start coming to me to ask me what I would do if I was in that situation. And then sober for three and a half years, don't even care. First speech I do, first speech I do is three days after rehab. I go to Minneapolis for a speech. I walk back into the green room. They have every kind of liquor imaginable with the lids off. And they're like, everybody's been drinking all day. Go ahead. (laughs) And I'm like, no, it's cool. It just like turned a light off for me. And the faith came back and I found out what was possible. And it's not our timing that matters. It's God's timing. And the things we go through, the bad things, the horrible things, he will make good use out of that. And while we're all pandemic 2020, he didn't cause that problem, but he will bring something good out of it. It's up to us to figure out what that is and move forward. And that's what rehab taught me. And that's what my wife taught me when she came to pick me up. It was an amazing time because I was clear-eyed for the first time in 20 years. Yeah. And and obviously you have that perspective now that you're going to learn from the situation and God is going to provide you with things that you need to extract from that situation to to grow and get better from. But early on in your life and throughout your entire life, up to that point, including that point, you were knocked down. You were in car accidents. You had surgery after surgery. You were had dream killers, dream killers, dream killers. Unbelievable many things that would knock you down. And a lot of people's natural response would be the victim mentality. Why is this happening to me? This is so unfair, all this kind of stuff. How do you think that you were able to not take on that victim mentality? Perseverance. If somebody tells me I can't do something, I still have that little kid in me that goes, watch me. And for a while there, the medical doctors are going, you're not going to walk. You're, you're going downhill. It's not going to happen. And so I started walking. And, and now today, I'm running. And I can run as far as I want to. And every time you get knocked down, you can lay there and wallow in self-pity. Or you can dust yourself off and get up and get after it again. My high school football coach taught me that. 
my grandfather taught me that. Life has taught me that. Faith has taught me that. How many times did the Savior come on our earth and then walk amongst people who were disbelieving and disavowed him and went, you don't exist. And then he just kept coming back and he kept talking to people and he kept living. We need to keep living and we need to find our next goal, our next dream and surround ourselves with those people we really want around us. I have a great team now and I'm looking forward to what comes next. What is it going to be? I don't know. Are there going to be obstacles? Absolutely. I have fun tearing obstacles down. I have fun seeing what I can do. What can I press through? Yeah. Yeah, I love it. And as everybody listening can tell, the Dream Makers book is definitely has the baseball stories in it, but it's not a not a baseball book. It's a a, a brutally honest book about your life that talks all about into great detail of the ups and downs. And we have only, if you thought the stuff that we mentioned today was bad and you thought that was a lot, we only scratched the surface on the unbelievable amount of obstacles that he was faced with. So you need to make sure that you go out and get it. I want to make sure I get a, a couple more questions out of you. I don't think I asked this to you last time, but I want you to think, take a second and just kind of picture the best version of yourself down the road. And if your current version of yourself is right here, and the best version of yourself is up here. What is a quality, a skill, or a piece of knowledge that that best version of yourself has that you don't currently have? I don't know that I don't currently have it. I think I want to improve it. And I think the most important thing that we learn as we go along, and I found it's not a handout that we need sometimes. It's a hand up. And if I can give back and I can help other people, and that's what this book is about, I'm laying my life out there. So if other people go, wow, I've been through some stuff, but I haven't been through that. I can get up and I can do it again. So the best version of myself is helping as many people as I possibly can and doing it God's way. That's what I want. What do you think is maybe one of the number one things that gets people down and then keeps them down? Like what... What's uh, because like you said, you want to lend a hand up to other people to get to get them back up. Like, what's the number one thing holding people back? Is it doubting themselves? Is it a lack of people around them? Or what do you think? I think they're they give up too easy. They don't know how to stick with something and see it through. And sometimes we quit one step away from being extremely successful and grabbing that dream. If we would just have opened that door and walked through, it would have been there. But we gave up because it got hard. Mm -hmm. Life is hard. It's never been easy. We're humans. We're stupid. And we make a lot of mistakes. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's crazy that both through my podcast and other podcasts, interviews that I've listened to, that's definitely a theme and an experience that I've heard multiple times is that a lot of times the good like or like the great, the success is literally right on the other side of a huge failure, a big mistake or anything like that. You just need to get that little bit further, push a little bit further through it. And then that success is going to come. It's unbelievable how many different people I've heard say that and talk about that. Well, I, I heard this story one time and it's made a 
huge impact on me. It was at SEAL training. And these guys had been through hell trying to become a Navy SEAL. And so as they're going on the last day, if they make it through this day, they will be a SEAL. Mm. And they come up right before the crest of a hill. There is a guy there offering them a drink and a great dinner right there. It's all set up. Just sit down and eat. All you have to do is ring this bell. And somebody rang the bell. But somebody else went over the crest of the hill. And right there on the other side of that hill, they became a Navy SEAL. Mm. People quit too soon. Mm. That's powerful. That's powerful. Well, before I ask the last question, I just want to acknowledge you again really quickly because I do think that this is one of the books that I've read that is one of the most, as I said earlier, brutally honest books about, and, and I just say that as a, as a tribute to you because so many people would not have the courage and the strength and the fortitude to be able to reveal the things and the stories that you have been able to reveal in your book. And that's the stuff that people admire. That's the stuff that people can relate with. And that's the stuff that people can learn from and implement into their own lives. I mean, even today, I've, I've posted a short video of me talking about how you tripped over your shoelace on the mound when you're pitching and you laughed about it because I thought that was I thought that was awesome. And that's something that if you didn't share to other people, then other people wouldn't feel like they have the ability to laugh at themselves as well when they make their own mistakes. So again, I just want to acknowledge you for the honest and openness that you have with your story and then the book. Absolutely. So to answer your question that you asked earlier, we need to have humility in knowing we're not invincible, mm-hmm. but we have to have the fortitude to get up and get after it again. And if we lose our faith, and I always tell people, I don't push my faith on anybody. That's my faith. That's what God's done for me. You can have it too, but if you don't want it, that's okay. But you have to have faith in something bigger than yourself because the world is bigger than we are. And unless you have that team in place and you're willing to get up and get after it every single day, it's going to swallow you up. So you have to keep your humility, your sense of humor. You have to be able to laugh at stuff. Man, I have screwed up so many times. And you just go, wow, that was not smart. But it's life. Yeah. And if it makes somebody giggle and laugh, that's even better because my grandfather taught me, laugh at yourself. He goes, don't be so serious. Don't take yourself seriously. He goes, do everything you can. But at the end of the day, if you screw up, laugh it off and get up and do it again. Yeah, I love that lesson. I love that lesson. I think that's something that I need to work on myself. Well, last question is what I've asked every single guest I've ever had on. And I asked you last time, but I'm sure you can't remember. And I didn't go back and listen because I, I want to go back afterwards to see how, if they're similar at all. But I think that getting closer to the best version of yourself is a constant journey and it's a unique journey. Um, I think the way that I get closer to the best version of myself is going to be a little bit different than the way that you get to the best version of yourself. So for you personally, if there are three things that you can currently do or currently work on to get closer to that best version of yourself, to get closer to the best Jim Morris that you could possibly be, what are those three things that you could currently do or work on? Keep surrounding myself with the best people possible to be the best me I can possibly be. That's number one. Number two, I need to push myself mentally and physically every day 
to better myself. And if I get one step better, or, or I jog one minute further, or I lift one pound more, then I'm improving. And that improvement can see massive improvement. Sometimes we look at things and we look in the mirror and we go, I'm not doing good enough. This isn't working. And then we give up. Well, you don't know what you can do until you know. And it's just like this virus right now. Oh, we're humanity. We are at the top of the food chain and we're being taken down by this little bitty bug. Ah, maybe we don't know everything. So push yourself constantly and you got to remember who you are and, and whose you are. For me personally, I am Jim Morris, but I'm also a child of God. And if I do one thing my grandfather always taught me is to treat other people like I would want my grandmother treated. I think that's huge because we need to be nicer to each other and we need to smile. And if somebody sneezes, don't break your neck trying to look at them because you think, oh my God, they've got COVID. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Pushing yourself. Remember who you are is the most important key. You've read the book. You know that. It means a lot. And it's going to mean a lot to a lot of people because we need to dust ourselves off and get after it and not give up. I love it. I love it. Well, three great things. And that was another uh, hell of an episode, Jim. Thanks so much for, for joining me. And I can't wait to uh, spread the message about the book and see how many amazing people get it and how many amazing people are transformed by it. Awesome. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate it. Of course. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed this unbelievable episode with Jim. This episode only scratches the surface of the crazy stories from Jim's book and about his childhood and everything moving forward. He'll keep you flipping the pages of this book like no other book you've ever read before. Make sure you share this episode to someone who loves great underdog stories, someone who's loved the movie The Rookie, or someone who's having a tough time in their life right now. If someone else can hear his story of being so down and see where he is now, they might just be inspired to do the same in their life. And for your own sake, make sure you go to dreammakersbook.com and grab a copy of his soon-to-be bestseller. Remember, if you have dream killers in your life, distance yourselves from them immediately. They're not gonna help you get anywhere, and they're just holding you back from becoming the person you were meant to become. Whether you're a person of faith or not, remember that you never know what's going on behind the scenes. There's always the possibility that something is helping you without you even knowing it. For now, it's time. It's time to take action. It's time to surround yourself with the best people possible, to fall down and then dust yourself off and get right back up and then do it again and again because that's what's gonna help you get closer and closer to your best you.